We're starting a new series, This is Our God. I want to read three verses from Job. Job said, can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They're higher than the heaven, what can you do? Deeper than hell, what can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth, and they're broader than the sea. Job is essentially saying that God is so immense that he is beyond our understanding. He is, he is inscrutable. And he is saying you can't unscrute the inscrutable. <laughs> Try unscrute with, uh, with a spell check and you'll, it'll scream at you. But it communicates. Another, maybe a synonym would be incomprehensible. It is not possibly possible to know God completely. If we could, he would be a finite being like ourselves. He is truly infinite, and the lesser worships the greater. We will never be God, and we can only know God insofar as he has chosen to reveal himself through special revelation. And uh, next week, Justin is going to be preaching on the topic of the self-revelation of God. There are two kinds of knowing. There's factual or rational knowing, and then there is relational knowing. The prerequisite to both is faith. And the writer of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews 11.6, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must first believe that he is factual and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him, relational. And the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 said, he exclaimed, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, but that I may know him, and the word there is epigenosko, which is a more than just an intellectual knowledge, it's a knowledge that comes from walking with, listening to, sharing one's heart with. It's an experiential knowledge. And that's what Paul was crying out for, that I may truly know him relationally. But before that can happen, we must know him as he has revealed himself to us factually. The scope of this short series, This is Our God, will focus on the factual, which leads to the relational. And the more accurately we know God factually, the more fully we will be able to know him relationally. Father, I pray that the knowledge of God would go deep into our heart from our mind, that we would take every effort to know who you are, that we might know you. And I pray that that would be, Father, the end result, that we might come to know you intimately, beginning with faith in Jesus Christ, which makes us children of the Father. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In his classic book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie wrote that a person's name is the sweetest and most important sound in any language, and it must be pronounced correctly. The first clue that I'm talking to a 
telephone solicitor is when they ask if Mr. Smithwich or Southwick is home. In Old Testament times, names were often used to communicate important insights about a person. Example would be Jacob, whose name was Deceiver. That's what it meant. Now, whether this was a self-fulfilling prophecy or, or not, it sure fit Jacob. He was, a, in our common vernacular, a manipulator. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel said to Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, which means Jehovah saves. Why? The angel explained, for he shall save his people from their sins. The name Jesus has very specific meaning. The story of God's name begins in the third chapter of the book of Exodus. I'd like you to turn there, if you would, Exodus chapter 3. We're going to spend a little time there. This is where God calls Moses specifically to become the human instrument through which God would use to deliver Israel from 400 years of bondage in Egypt. God previously had revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty and entered into covenant with them. Along the way, after Jacob had wrestled with God and entered into relationship with him, a faith relationship, God changed his name from deceiver to Israel, a prince, a prince with God. Yes, a prince with God. Jacob's 12 sons and their progeny are called Israelites, the sons of Jacob, prince with God, Israel. Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said to him, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. And then verse 8, So I have come down to deliver them, the children of Israel, out of the hands of the Egyptians, to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That explains why God had this encounter with Moses. The deliverance of Egypt. Then he explains who. Verse 6. Moreover he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon him. God here tells Moses who he is. He says, I am the God. The word I am is a translation of the first person form of the verb hayah, to be, meaning that God here is proclaiming himself to be the self-existent, uncreated 
God, the transcendent God. The word I am refers not to God's static being, but to his active existence, especially in regard to the well-being of his children. And the, the well-being here was the active existence was, had to do with the deliverance of the children of Israel. So, why the deliverance of Israel? Who? God Almighty, who revealed himself previously to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But, verse 13, that was not satisfactory for Moses. For Moses says, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and, they say, to, and, and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And in verse 14, we learn what his name is. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am is the translation of Yahweh. The, tech, uh, the four letters, the four Hebrew letters, it's translated I am. A third person singular, uh, referring to his self existence. And in chapter 6, verse 2 of Exodus, it says, And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I am the I am, the I am literally. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, Yahweh, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. I will take you as my people. And I will be your God, then you shall, shall know that I am Yahweh. I am, the, I am the I am, your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the I am. There's going to be some uh, need for clarification here. Yahweh, or Jehovah, or in our English Bibles, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, always refers back to Yahweh, Jehovah. Third person form of the Hebrew word to be. It's why in John 1.8, John, excuse me, John 1.4, in him, in Jesus, is life. Self-existent, uncreated life and the source of all life came from the Creator, who is there decreed to be Jesus, the one who is the I Am. So, I guess you could say that we are all Jehovah's Witnesses. One thing we can say for sure, that God has a name, and that name is not Allah. It's Yahweh, or as we usually say, Jehovah. Now in Scripture, the name of God is often used with other words to express some aspect of God's character. For example, we often use the word hallelujah. That's a joining of the word yah. Because of the Greek translation, it's jah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallel, which means a, a shout of praise to the Lord. A shout of praise, yah, to the Lord. 
Hallelujah. And then it is also used uh, in a hyphenated way in many words. For example, uh, Yahweh Yireh. We pronounce it Jehovah Jireh. When Abraham was called to offer Isaac as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah, on the way up, Isaac had the wood on his shoulders and he said, Dad, we have the wood, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said to him, Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. That's where that came from. Yahweh Ropeh, the Lord who heals you. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is peace. Yahweh Sidonu, the Lord our righteousness. I'd like you to turn to that one in Jeremiah 23. Verse 3, excuse me, verse 5, Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, that I will raise a branch, I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth, or on the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. If you're planning to go to heaven, it won't be based upon the fact that you're righteous somehow. Any more than my going there will be the result of that. I will present to to God the righteousness of Jesus Christ as my claim of entrance into God's heaven. I am robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness applied to my account. The Lord, our righteousness, that truth was fully known in the Old Testament as well. And then, Yahweh Samah, the Lord is there. So the question that immediately comes to, at least came to my mind, how did Yahweh become Jehovah in our English Bibles? In the... uh, Hebrew text, you always start at the right and read left. And Hebrew originally did not have any vowels, just consonants. So in the upper right-hand corner is the first word of this sentence. N-W. You can put an E or an O. That can be now or new. S. You can have an I in front of it. Uh, an A in front of it, or an O behind it. You know, you have a lot of multiple choice. Uh, It's a little difficult for us. Uh, We're not used to this. But that sentence says, Now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their what? Country. That's kind of easy to figure. You know, it's kind of like looking at license plates and trying to decipher those special ones. Uh, You see some rather interesting ones. At the daycare center, there's one that says, Viking fan and it's all condensed down but I can read it I don't need constant or I don't need uh, vowels to read now that's just put that in the back of your mind we're going to come back to that the main thing I want to point out there's no vowels just consonants in Hebrew 
Jehovah and Jewish tradition. So how did the name Yahweh become Jehovah? The third commandment says, You shall not misuse the name of Yahweh, your God, for Yahweh will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. That's the third commandment. And the Jewish people making sure, uh, uh, not obeying the, the spirit of the law, but making sure the letter of the law, they decided the best way to keep from uh, uh, disobeying this command was just not to use the word. So they substituted the word Adonai, which means Lord or Master. And in daily conversation, they would refer to Yahweh as Adonai, or most commonly, they would just refer to the name. And if you uh, go to your internet and read Israel National News, you will see the rabbis that are, uh, have articles uh, in there and commentaries. To this same day, they refer to the name. They won't use the name. They're afraid they might violate it somehow. So, if God's name is Yahweh, how did it become Jehovah? About 1000 AD, in order to try to preserve a proper pronunciation, Jewish scribes added vowels to Yahweh. Years later, when the English translations were made, just like when two varieties of plants are cross-pollinated, you produce a, a hybrid. The vowels, this is what the English translators did, they took the vowels from Adonai and put them over here with Yahweh. And what did they come up with? Jehovah. The J is a, is a uh, what's the word, is a... Uh, the word I used in my notes was phenomena. It's a phenomena of the Greek translation. The Greeks don't have a J. They have a Y. So the J is replaced with a Y. No, the Y is replaced with a J. I'm sorry, I had it backwards. And so they came up with Jehovah, which was word Yahweh, with the vowels of Adonai placed in there, and the Y becoming a J. And so we have... Jehovah, which really is Yahweh. And in our Bibles, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. But it means, refers back to Yahweh. Now, folks, aren't you glad you came this morning? <laughs> I'm sure you'll remember all of that. But that's how Yahweh became Jehovah. Now, a brief look at the names of God. Jehovah and Jesus, first of all, as stated by the angel, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua, or Joshua. A compound name made from an abbreviation of Yahweh and the Hebrew verb to save. Thus, Jesus means Jehovah Yahweh saves. As stated by Jesus, 
Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus here identified himself as Yahweh, revealed in the Old Testament. The Jews who listened to him, the unbelieving scribes and Pharisees, understood clearly what he was saying. He was declaring to them that he was God in human flesh. How do we know that they understood it that way? Because the next verse, they took up stones to kill him for blasphemy. They absolutely understood what he was saying. And as stated by the apostle, that spiritual rock that followed them throughout the wilderness wanderings, that rock was Jesus, was Christ. Who Who did Moses speak to when he went into the tent of meeting during the wilderness wanderings when he talked with God face to face he was talking to Jesus doesn't that make the Old Testament different from what you maybe thought before the Bible says that no man can see God face to face and live unless he is in human form Jesus was God with a human face God with, with a, a human face, yeah. The face of a man. God in human flesh. And the pre-incarnate Jesus, also referred to in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, appeared in many times in many places to different Old Testament saints. But over and over and over in the Old Testament, when Moses went into the tent of meeting, the Shekinah glory uh, filled the temple and the tent of, glory, of meeting As Moses talked with Jesus, he came and his face glowed after being in his presence in his glorified state. Jehovah of the Old Testament and Jesus of the New Testament are one and the same, or at least in most references. Most Old Testament passages clearly connect Jesus with Yahweh of the Old Testament. Some seem to be best understood as referring to the Father, a few, and a very few to the Holy Spirit. My preliminary conclusion, even though I haven't studied this fully, is that Yahweh is the name of God which can refer to one particular or all three persons of the Godhead. But in that, the Bible is the story of redemption and the central player is Jesus. Most often when you see Yahweh in the Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your Bible, it is 99% of the time old and new, is a reference to Jesus. Jesus himself said to the unbelieving Pharisees and scribes, search the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, for they testify of me. Now, does God have more than one name? Certainly. How many names do you have? I can think of about a a dozen off the top of my head. Larry, Mr. Smithwick, pastor, dad, husband, Pumpkin head, sweet pea, grandpa, gramps, uncle Larry, cousin Larry, nephew Larry. In my college days, it was Smitty. And in most recent days, since the advent of VeggieTales, I'm now Larry Cucumber (laughs) or Larry Boy. I get that quite a lot. I enjoy that. Other names for, for God, most common is Elohim is a plural word. You see it in Genesis 1. It's it's translated 2,500 times God. 
And just for the sake of it, did you know that God is not a biblical term? It's just an English word for Yahweh. It's just a word we use. In every language, there's a different word for God, all referring to the same person. It's just not a biblical term, God. I'm just trying to shake you up here a little bit. One time I asked this guy, I said, was, was Jesus a Christian? We said, well, yeah. I said, no, he wasn't. Jesus isn't a Christian. Nobody had to die for his sins. Christians are people who come to faith in Christ because they needed forgiveness of their sins. Jesus is the head of the church, not one of the underlings. But again, you didn't come this morning to hear that. The word Elohim speaks of his unity, his majesty, and it allows for the doctrine of the Trinity, which wasn't fully revealed until the New Testament. Much of Revelation in the Bible is progressive as it goes through, and it's tied together. There's a unity of the revelation of God, both old and new. So the most common name for God is Elohim. A very common name also is El. It's basically um, the same, used interchangeably, and some believe it is a, a, an abbreviation. In Scripture, it is often used as an epithet, the great El, the El of Els, the God of Gods, the God of Heaven, the God Most High, and so on. And then the third term is Eloah, not Aloha, Eloah. It's used about 60 times most frequently in Job. <clears throat> Some feel it is an ancient term for God closely linked to El and Elohim. It is used interchangeably with them. These names do not speak of relationship, rather of divine being, of his existence, of his ultimate power, of a transcendent God. It speaks of his power and his, his Godhead, but it doesn't speak of love, mercy, and grace. All, almost all tribal groups have a name for the God, the Most High God. I grew up in the Yakima Indian Reservation. About 10, 12, 15 years ago, I was reading Don Richardson's book, Eternity in Their Hearts. And in the book, he says the, the, the Yakima Nation language has the word Saharan T as the supreme being. I went home, uh, oh, maybe 10, 12 years ago, and I saw one of my high school buddies, Tommy Benson, um, a full-blooded Yakima native. And uh, he served in Vietnam just trying to tell you what kind of a guy he was, uh, he volunteered to go out and search and destroy missions. And when he would kill a Viet Cong, instead of scalping them, he'd cut off his ear. And he was making a necklace. And he had 13 ears on his necklace when the military uh, forced him to stop doing that. So he was not just some wallflower type guy. And, and I said, Tommy, does the word Saharan tea mean anything to you? And he said, well, yeah, that's the name of God. He knew, even though he was far from any kind of relationship with God, but he knew they had a name for the Most High God, even though in polytheistic tribal groups, there's always one who is supreme over all the others. In uh, the Apache language, uh, they refer to the one God. And many times we hear the Great Spirit. A recognition in tribal groups that there is a God above all other so-called gods. 
In Psalm 19.1, we read that the heavens declare the glory of God. The witness of creation speaks not of love and mercy and grace, but of his existence and power. It took his special revelation to us to talk about the other aspects. A fourth word is Adonai. This term is derived from an ancient Ugaritic word meaning Lord or Father, denoting honor and respect. It also is in the plural form. And one last one in the Old Testament is Ancient of Days. This occurs three times in the Aramaic section of Daniel. There are three languages uh, in the Bible, Aramaic, Greek, and Hebrew. There are two places that the Aramaic is, is placed in Daniel, and I think it's either, I believe it's Ezra or Esther, I'm not sure which, just a brief section. But the second half of the book of Daniel was originally written in Aramaic, the first half was written primarily for a Jewish audience, the last for a Gentile. They wanted to make sure, I believe, is the reason for it, that the Gentile world would understand the prophecies that were given in the last seven chapters of Daniel. In the seventh chapter, speaking of the end of the world, the one who was from the beginning will be the one who is there at the end, bringing in everlasting righteousness. I am the first I am the last, and there is no God beside me. Daniel 7, 9. Now, there are well over a hundred, maybe hundreds of names, descriptions, and titles for God. I've, I've given five or six here, mostly from the Old Testament. I want to end this morning with just four more from the New Testament. Theos. We talk of theology. Logos and theos means a word about God. That's theology. Theos is a word that is used uh, exclusively, actually, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, to translate the word Elohim or El, referring to God. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 1, Peter begins his epistle by saying, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter uses the, the primary word for God, translating Elohim also for Jesus. The second most prominent word for God in the Old Testament is referring to Jesus most commonly, and it's kurios. This term derived from the Greek word kairos, meaning power or might. The term appears over 9,000 times in the Septuagint as a translation usually of Yahweh. In the first century, some Roman emperors found the title attractive. There's an inscription found about Nero who is described as kurios, of the, all the world. The first century Christians were fed to lions when they refused to say, Caesar is Lord. They said, no, the ultimate authority is Jesus. Jesus is Lord. That's the idea of kurios, declaring that there is no greater authority. I was once talking with a young person who was clearly demon-possessed. In 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, 
says that no man can declare that Jesus is Lord but by the Spirit of God. And I gave a very clear definition of this young man, what I meant by Lord. And I said, young man, I want you to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he said, Jesus Christ is... He couldn't say it. He was fully given to satanic occult worship. That young man went out from that day. I, I still don't know what happened to him, but, but he, he went right back to the pig pen where he had come from. He was unwilling to give up. He, this is the, the young man that said to me that satanic evil has an enticement that is ten times greater than sex. Never, never, never dabble in the occult. You're playing with fire. And to get caught up in the occult will be the most terrible thing that could ever happen to you. And few there are that ever are redeemed from the occult. However, a young man We'll talk about that some other time. I'm running out of time. Jude wrote of Jesus Christ as Kyrios, Lord, Master, Ultimate Authority. And when we refer to Jesus as our Lord, Jesus Christ, we are confessing that He is Lord. He is the Sovereign, Potentate, and Master. God Omnipotent. Jesus, the God who saves. Christ, the Messiah. And in the book of Philippians chapter 2, Paul said the coming, there is coming a day when every knee and every bow, every, every knee and every tongue, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. That day is coming and I say hallelujah. Even so come quickly Lord Jesus. And that is why I believe there are so many who think they are Christians. Because they said, I believe in Jesus. They got their ticket punched and then went on and there was never any transformation in their lives because they had never come to a place of submitting and surrendering their lives to Jesus as Lord. They just wanted a meal ticket to heaven. It doesn't work that way. We submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior. And when that is our heart, a repentant faith, the Holy Spirit comes and brings a newness of life. We become a new creature in Christ Jesus. We are born again. But just to say, I believe in Jesus, the demons believe in Jesus. And they tremble. But has there been a choice of your will to surrender your life to the authority of Jesus Christ in your life? That's all part and parcel of the package. The last two names refer specifically to God the Father. It is these names that I personally most appreciate. Pater, which could be translated Papa. It's an intimate term. It's a term that by faith in Jesus we become the children of God. And as children, we have access to God intimately as our Father. And the other word is Abba, an Aramaic term 
an endearing Aramaic term that can be translated daddy. And this is the term that Jesus used when he was praying in Gethsemane. And he says, oh, Father, Papa, Daddy, if it's be possible, let this cup pass from me. It's the same term that we hear as children of God in Romans 8, addressing the Father and the power of the Spirit. All of these facts about God, I pray, will lead us to a place of repentant faith that we might go from fact to relationship. Have you come to a place of faith relationship in Jesus Christ? And I'm not talking about playing around, getting your ticket punched so that you can go on, life as usual, trying to have your cake and eat it too. Have you truly come to faith in Jesus Christ? The fear of God led me to that place in my life, and it was after I became a child of God that I learned that he was a father and that he loved me and that I could love him in return. And I'd like to close by reading just one verse of scripture from an Old Testament prophet, Zechariah, excuse me, Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 17, which says, Yahweh, your God, in your midst, the mighty one who will save, he is the one who will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet your heart with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. That's the, revelation, the self-revelation of God. He loves us. He is for us. If God be for us, and he is, who could be against us? Father, I thank you that this is our God I thank you, Father, that, he is not, that you are not the God of the polytheistic idolatry. You are not the God of wishful thinking. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are the God revealed in Scripture. In whose name I pray, amen.